Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Over the past few years, the IRS has ramped up compliance and enforcement efforts focused on U.S. payments to foreign persons, as well as foreign income received by U.S. persons. The requirements for compliance can be confusing, and the consequences for failure to report can feel draconian. To help us sort it out, I've invited Tara Ferris to the show. Tara is a principal in the Financial Services Office of Ernst & Young, LLP. In this role, Tara advises multinational financial institutions and asset managers on customer tax reporting and withholding. She focuses on process and control improvements to create efficiencies and reduce risk. Prior to joining Ernst & Young LLP, Tara served as IRS Senior Counsel and worked on matters related to FATCA, non-resident alien withholding and reporting, and international aspects of domestic information reporting. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that I think is really interesting, um, especially in terms of tax season, is reporting requirements. And as I mentioned, there's more of an emphasis now on either U.S. payments to foreign persons or foreign income received by U.S. persons. And a lot of this, I think, is because we become more global in the way we do business. How are you seeing this as it impacts your practice? So that's exactly right, that we are seeing this expansion on information reporting. And and you're correct that I do think a lot of that is because we're in this global environment where it's very easy to have transactions offshore. We're also living in a day and age where there's a lot more of electronic transactions that make these borders almost non-existent in a lot of ways. Right. So we've really seen the IRS ramp up information reporting, the requirements around information reporting, and the compliance around information reporting. We've seen a lot of trends both in the international space and in the domestic space. A lot of that, I go back and I think about the time when I was at the IRS and and we would have people come in and speak, commissioners, former commissioners in enforcement. And really when they look at how do we make sure that there is no tax evasion? What's the easiest way to when we are self-declaring as U.S. persons, we're telling the IRS what our income is, which is a little bit different from some other jurisdictions. So Mm -hmm. it's a voluntary regime where we're volunteering up, here's our income. And so what's the way to make sure that that's, that's accurate and that there's no fraud? Well, the easiest way is to have another party reporting on the income that we got. So having third party reporting. So the more third party reporting that the IRS receives, it's their view and it's likely correct that there's less fraud going on. And so that's why I think we're seeing this increase in reporting. And like you noted, both domestically, those that are operating and have financial accounts or transactions onshore, but also financial institutions offshore, the IRS has found a way to require reporting by those institutions as well. And it's interesting that you mentioned former commissioners and and folks at IRS because when I had Charles Rosati, former IRS commissioner on the program, he had written an article talking about increased reporting and why it's a good thing in his view. And one of the things that he mentioned is when we started requiring 
social security numbers to be put on returns for dependents, that there was a huge drop off in the number of dependents that were being claimed. And that signaled to the IRS that, you know, requiring there to be a match on a form did in fact increase compliance. So that does lend a lot of uh, a credence to this notion that, you know, the more forums, the better on some level. But that being said, the more forums can create more confusion. So how do you communicate to your clients and, and to the, the financial institutions that you work with why it's important at the same time having them understand when is when do you need to issue the form as opposed to when you don't? Because that's something I think that actually people were complaining about on tax Twitter today, um, the overabundance of forms sometimes that people issue because they're not sure. So a tax pro may you know, issue it to 99 when they maybe don't need to. So how do you have those conversations with your clients? Yeah, I think that's right. I, we often say to our clients that no one ever comes in banks with you because you have great information returns because they love getting those 1099s. <laughs> right. But a client might leave you for getting a 1099 that that's for the reason you noted, there's this matching going on. So for getting a 1099 that, that doesn't reflect properly their income. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's 1042S. I mean, that's why we saw cost basis reporting come around, right? Because we had all these people who were getting flagged with IRS audits for all these gains and then had to go out and prove their basis. And it was creating an issue. And then the burden of cost basis reporting came around and it does provide taxpayers some relief, but it's very difficult for financial institutions to comply with. The same with 1042S reporting. So The interesting thing I think about information reporting that people have to step back and think about just kind of the one-on-ones of it is, is this the type of person that's reportable and is this the type of payment that's reportable? So it's, it's two things that you need to go through to determine whether you have a reporting requirement. So on the 1042S side, you're looking at a non-US person. Is this person provided some information to me, preferably a W-8 form? that tells me that they're a non-US person. If they're a non-US person, did they get FIDAP income? So did they get interest, dividends, rents, royalties, income like that, that's going to be reported on a 1042S? And importantly, is there withholding tax associated with that, right? And that's where really the penalties can come in is when you didn't withhold properly or correctly, and you could have an underwithholding um, liability associated with that, along with the potential for incorrect reporting penalties for the 1042S. On the U.S. side, it's it's very similar. So did this person give me a W-9 form? Are they a U.S. person? And then the, did they get the type of payment that's subject to reporting? And depending on whether they are banking or have a relationship in the U.S. versus offshore, the requirements can change. And that's the most complex thing I find is non-US institutions trying to figure out whether they have a 1099 reporting requirement Mm -hmm. because those rules are really cumbersome. You're tracing through regulations full and riddled with cross-references to determine whether you have that obligation. I actually spend a lot of time with clients identifying whether or not they have that reporting obligation. And what do you do or how do you advise when they don't give you the information that you need initially. And by that, you reference, for example, forms W-8 and W-9. This is something that we see, especially accountants scrambling with early on in the the tax season when they realize that maybe it's time to issue a 1099, but they don't have the correct information to start, right? Because maybe they didn't realize that they were going to need to 
have this information. So there's always this scramble to go back and, okay, you didn't fill out a W-9. Here's what you do. How does that work, especially on the W-8 or the foreign side? Because I think it would be incredibly complicated. It's very difficult to describe to a non-U.S. person why they have to complete this U.S. tax form. And I think that was, we mentioned FACA in the very beginning. FACA really exaggerated that because it was very much, why am I complying with this U.S. tax rules when I have no relationship or connection to the U.S.? But you might just be investing in a type of security and not know that because that is a U.S. uh, security that you're receiving U.S. income. Mm-hmm. and have to now complete this U.S. tax form that's quite lengthy. The, I think the good news is, is the, the rules for W-8s, even though the W-8 is harder, they're more forgiving. So to the extent you don't get a W-8 on time or it's filled out incorrectly, there's the ability to go back and fix it and have that fix count from the time that you were supposed to withhold. So the withholding rules and the backup withholding rules require that you have that form on hand before you're handing out that payment, right? The government wants you collecting its money before it goes out the door. The W-8 rules, like I mentioned, are forgiving in that if you didn't have that W-8 at the time of payment, you can get it retroactively. The W-9 rules are less forgiving. Um, There are some workarounds, but they're generally less forgiving. And so it's really important that those documents get furnished and provided up front, validated up front. So making sure all the required information is on there. With W-9's most common mistake we see and the things that people struggle with are the signature on the W-9, um, strangely enough. And, Interesting. Yeah. But the W-9 in and of itself is really simple, but we have also have trusts and disregarded entities and things like that that can complicate how the form is completed. So it's important that it gets done upfront correctly. And then that that data, the, the thing that we're having the conversation about a lot is getting that data in a system of record where it can be easily pulled and then used to flow on to the information returns. The less manual the process is, the better. Because as you mentioned in the very beginning, the IRS is really focused on the information, making sure those TINs are right, because those TINs are the key to matching that income to a tax return. So if the TIN is wrong, we frustrated the purpose. Mm -hmm. If other identifying information is incorrect or the income amounts are incorrect, right? That frustrates the IRS's enforcement efforts. And so they're keen on that information being correct. And as you know, the more manual it is, the less likely it is to be accurate. Right. And what do you do in situations where I know that you I'm not suggesting that you've been in this situation, but you might have on the IRS side. When you do have these financial institutions who may have clients who don't wish to be reported, and you know we've seen this play out in big cases across uh, some of the, the banking secrecy issues that, that were happening in Europe, but how do you convince a financial institution that they need to give up the data, especially in countries where they may have built their entire system around the idea that it's secret. Right. I think from the U.S. income standpoint, so when you have a non-U.S. person or a U.S. person receiving U.S. source income, they're really a a U.S. person receiving any type of income. The way that the rules are drafted, they put you in the worst case scenario. So if you don't offer up that W-8 or that W-9 form, the way that the rules are drafted is you 
get presumed a certain status. And that presumption always leads to withholding or backup withholding. So it's not like you cannot declare yourself and avoid any financial consequence. It usually comes down to there's going to be withholding and backup withholding. And that makes sense, right? The Mm -hmm. the government doesn't want to not have that. If you're not going to identify yourself so they can check your return to make sure the information's correct, they're going to make sure that the money is collected. And if you want a refund, then then come in and, and claim that credit of that income. And then when you get into the FACA regime and now the common reporting standard, which really globalized the concept of FACA, you see, like you're saying, these places where banking information was traditionally secret and it can no longer be that way. There is this global initiative around tax transparency and exchange of information to encourage tax compliance. And we've really seen a lot of success in that area in the last few years, and governments are really enforcing the rules. So I think kind of bank secrecy, as we traditionally thought about it uh, 15 years ago, doesn't really exist anymore in this day and age with with FACA and, and the common reporting standard. You know, as a taxpayer, when you get your 1099, you know, usually you hand over those kinds of uh, documents to your tax professionals. And, you know, occasionally you'll, and this has happened to me either as a freelancer or maybe from a bank after you've moved, you're looking at what you had last year and you're realizing that there might be a form that's missing. And there's always a moment of, do I need this form? Should I ask for this form? For taxpayers who aren't used to getting some of these kinds of forms, let's, for example, the 1042S. How do they know what to do and who to ask when that form doesn't come through? Because again, if you've been in the system your whole life, I think that, you know, you just call up your tax account and you're like, hey, I didn't get my 1099 did this week or or this year. What do I do? What do you do if you think you're supposed to get a form and you didn't? Is that something that a taxpayer, a conversation they should have with their financial institution? Should they go to their tax professional? Like, where does that conversation start? I do think it starts with your financial institution. A couple of important points I think that you're noting. One is from a personal angle, I would be lost without my 1099s. I wouldn't know (laughs) half of what to do. And so they are really important to get. And then there are tax court cases where someone had said, look, I gave over all my 1099s to my accountants and I didn't get this one 1099. And so that's how I prepared my income. And I shouldn't be hit with penalties for underreporting. Because I didn't realize I didn't have this income because I didn't have the 1099 or the tax court basically said, no, you have an obligation to review your return, make sure it's accurate and correct. Your 1099s, just relying on those is not good enough. Right. So we do have that obligation as taxpayers uh, to make sure that we're getting all of our information onto our tax return. And then with our financial institution, it's making sure that we get what we expected and that it's correct. And those conversations really do start with your financial institution and the relationship that you have there. I think what I've observed is when you're banking, perhaps if you're you're a U.S. person banking overseas, we have seen a lot of those not those financial institutions, whether they're U.S. banks with a, an overseas office or just large global financial institutions, they realize how much us U.S. people are dependent on 1099s. And so I've seen them issue them as even if they didn't have the obligation to under the regs Mm -hmm. to do it as a customer service issue. Right. 1042S is a little bit difficult, especially when you're dealing with one, 
the income is the tax liability has been satisfied. So to the extent withholding happened, in most cases, that then relieves the non-US person of filing a tax return. So they don't understand why they're getting this 1042S. And so that is a difficult thing to have to explain. The rules are changing in this space. There's a new regulation that's going to be effective next year around holding a publicly traded partnership interest and being subject to withholding as a non-US person. Mm-hmm. And there, even though you suffered the withholding, it's because it's effectively connected income to a US trader business, something that a non-US person investing in a PTP would not really understand unless they were a tax professional themselves. Right. It triggers a US tax filing obligation. So it changes that landscape and puts this additional requirement on, which is going to be a little bit, it's going to be very complex for non-US people to understand and comply with. It sounds like actually like a reverse FBAR situation where a lot of US persons didn't realize that they might have a filing obligation just because they had an account involved a foreign, you know, control over a foreign account. It is interesting to me, and I think it's something that, you know, my my clients struggle with this idea that you could have a reporting requirement that you don't, you're, that you're not aware of, right? Because we're all used to a vanilla 1040 on some level. And, you know, you can have reporting requirements that you didn't even know existed. How, as a tax professional, do you advise clients to figure out what those are? Because that's a really, that's a big lift. It's not like, even if you have your your client questionnaires and you're talking to people, there are questions that are new that we're having to ask all the time, right? Like it used to be, it used to be pretty simple. And then we had to start asking questions about foreign accounts. And now we have to ask questions about crypto. Like, how do you keep ahead of that? Yeah, I think it's really helpful when the financial institution itself, or if we're talking about a, a partnership that someone's invested in, the more that they provide frequently asked questions, Q&As, explanatory footnotes. So for instance, we see the K-1 reports the FIDAP income and then the, the non-US people also get a 1042S. So it's almost like they got two, they did get two information returns essentially with the same income on it, which can be confusing. But if you look at those footnotes, if you look at those white papers, it does help explain what exactly is going on. And then from there, you can figure out what your filing obligation is. But you're right, there is a lot going on in this space that's going to expand the questions that need to be asked about what income should flow onto that return. You mentioned crypto. We're waiting for guidance in that space. It's going to change and expand information reporting. We have the 1099K rules, which is about these merchants now needing to do some reporting on transactions that previously did not get reported. So that expanding landscape in the 1099K, especially where you have these third-party settlement organizations that are going to be doing the reporting, the reporting is really for commercial transactions. And that's an important, I think, requirement of the rule. Because if, for instance, I send you money and say, hey, here's some money for your birthday, that's not subject to 1099k reporting mm-hmm. where a transaction if i pay my pool maintenance guy would be subject to 1099k reporting so it'll be interesting to see how these third party settlement organizations are going to make those determinations and what that's going to mean but more important for those people that are using those third party settlement organizations and potentially getting 1099k's to make sure that those are correct 
because there is that IRS matching. I do think it's an interesting shift of the burden back to the taxpayer, because as we kind of open the program with, you know, there's this idea that although it is voluntary compliance, right, like that we we report, we self-report um, in the U.S., there is this forms matching that traditionally has using air quotes, but it's helped, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's something you get your 1099 and you're like, oh, that's right. I forgot I had that a bank account because I never touch it. And here's a little bit of interest. I need to make sure I report that. And we're seeing now, since you mentioned 1099K, that's another example of you have to keep really good records to know what it is, as you mentioned, that was that the money that I Venmoed my mom or was that the money that I received because I'm a photographer and that's how someone paid me or I got those backwards, but you know what I mean, (laughs) if you're sending money to the photographer. So it is, it is a really interesting shift that we're saying to taxpayers, I mean, I've always said, you know, that's kind of the number one rule, right, of tax and accounting is keep excellent records. But I do think, especially as we go more paperless, people don't always keep great records because there's this idea that, well, there's a record online. I'll just get it later. Um, You know, how do we counsel taxpayers or I guess educate taxpayers about the need for keeping these these things very separate? Because, you know, obviously... This is something, you know, it's accounting 101. You keep your business separate from your personal. But realistically, and we've all had clients that have done this, that doesn't always happen, right? Like those, those, those lines get blurred a lot. Or is this something that the IRS needs to do in terms of education? Like, what do you see as kind of a next step toward this? Because we can't just say, hey, the rules have changed. You guys be on the alert, right? Like there needs to be an underlying record keeping system. I have a concern about this space just history, right? We've seen the IRS get a lot of information, go out and do stuff with it, and then that put a huge burden on taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to see where the balance is going to be. So there's a lot of information now that is going to the IRS. It does put that burden on the taxpayer to make sure that that information is correct and keep records to the extent it's not correct, because the IRS is using data analytics and all sorts of, and and this third-party reporting to match income and tie income back. But it might be over-reporting. So there might be a very good reason, like you're saying, why the income is not reportable. It's going to cost time and money to explain that to the IRS, right? Most individuals, most corporations, when they're facing the IRS, they don't want to do it alone. And so that means that they're going to the burden of engaging some additional assistance, which can be expensive. And they might be doing it for something that's very easily explainable. And the IRS just had almost too much information. So I think there is going to be a balance there where when you have all that data, you not only need to use that data, but use it well so that we're not putting too much burden on one side or the other. So I think it's going to be an interesting few years as we see a couple drivers that could really put tension in the system. There's a compliance requirement of all these people who have to issue the 1099s, the 1042Ss, the FACA filings. That's expensive. Mm -hmm. You have to issue those information returns and you want to do it well, like we talked about, because there's penalties associated with that um, for potentially doing it or for doing it incorrectly. There's the taxpayer burden of now needing to keep record to to justify this. And then there's the expense of the IRS in having to handle the information and handle it wisely 
so that you're not unfairly pursuing people and and causing additional cost because of information that's in there, which might not at all be reflective of the income they received. Right. And I do think that there has been and continues to be confusion for taxpayers over forms and reporting. And by that, I mean, there's a lot of folks who believe, I think, honestly believe that they don't need to report income that is not on a form. And so I think we've almost gotten really, you know, a little bit overly dependent on these forms. And I think that there is going to be this window of needing to re-educate, educate taxpayers on what is taxable and what is not. Because I do think, especially the window on the 1099K window in particular, you know, we're going from a 200 transaction, $20,000 threshold to 600. That's a huge change. It's a huge change. And I mean, I've noticed it impact my daily life where there were people that I used to use these third-party settlement organizations to do tips Mm -hmm. and things like that. And now they don't want to use those anymore for their tips. And because there's that's part of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's transactions for which now with, with even people reading articles in the newspaper and not realizing that Again, if I send you some money for your birthday, that's not reportable. But because they don't understand the complexity of it and everybody's buzzing around and talking about it, they're now worried about me sending them money that way because they don't want to get a 1099K that they don't need to get. Right. And on the flip side, people are doing things to make income that would properly be classified as taxable look non taxable. Again, going back to over reliance perhaps on these forms. You know, there was a whole thing circulating on TikTok about how just change your account. So if you have a business PayPal, change it to a personal PayPal and voila, no reporting. Like this is kind of the the theme. And I do think, you know, when we do get overly reliant on these forms, this is sort of the danger. And so again, we'll have to see what happens. I think this is like a new territory on all parts, right? And so we're in this shift of over... There's the ability to get information and process large volumes of information, right? The, the moment these forms started coming in electronically, the IRS in, improved the systems on its side. It developed units, specialized units to look for information returns and to look for potential underreporting. That's all very new in the last few years. And so we will see what that means as far as is there going to be, I think there's, we're going to see a huge increase in 1099 audits, a, a space that really has been quiet for a long time. I think we'll see a big uptick now that there's a specialized unit dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. We've seen a huge uptick in 1042S compliance and exams. And mm-hmm. that was really the IRS using data analytics to compare information, identify errors very quickly. And then they send out these quick hit letters. Why are you doing this? Explain yourself for that. So that that we're seeing a lot more from from the IRS. And again, going back to, I think that then it's going to pr- create a huge burden on the taxpayer, which may or may not be appropriate depending on the situation. And we'll see, you know, we'll see how that goes over the next couple of years and whether they're going to, there's going to need to be some corrections in the system to make it more targeted and focused. And since you mentioned, since we're talking about targeted compliance, another thing that the IRS has really been focusing on is, and you talk about kind of the future, I think it's going to be this uh, target of crypto reporting. 
now that more mainstream financial institutions adapting crypto in various forms, do you think that that's going to make it easier or harder for the IRS to enforce crypto reporting? I think the IRS has a lot of rules to draft. So we're in the very (laughs) early stages of crypto. If If I go back to my own experience, right, there were rules that Congress passed, information reporting rules that Congress passed before I got to the IRS. And they still have not been finalized. Um, and the regulations re- regarding those rules have still not been finalized. I worked on them when I was there. I left. They've been continued to be worked on and they're still not finalized. And in that span, it's over 10 years. So wow. I think for crypto, we've got a long road ahead of us. It's exciting. It's interesting now from the tax space, right? It's the first time us tax professionals get to talk about something cool like cryptocurrency. And I was on a conversation the other day where someone was telling me about mining and what mining was. And I never thought I would be having that conversation in a work context before. Right. But there I was. And so we're at, I think we're at the very beginning stages of the crypto reporting lifespan of before we actually have to comply with these rules. But Mm -hmm. I think they're going to be a lot of, of 1099 reporting a lot impacted by the 1099 reporting because we are seeing, like you said, a lot of traditional financial institutions get into this space. Of course, companies that focus only in this space and there will be a 1099 reporting obligation. We just have to see what the complexities of it are going to be as those rules evolve. But I don't think we'll have guidance in this space for a few years. Wow. It's very interesting. And I've had this conversation with a lot of other professionals. I actually worked with a lot of the FATCA FR issues with my clients back when that was sort of at its peak. And it feels very similar to me, that whole atmosphere. It feels very similar to me. And and now that we're talking about crypto, like you see the question show up on the 1040. Like it's just that same, you know, kind of sequence of events. Like we asked you, we asked you nicely to report. And you, you know, they feel like you didn't. And so now we're just going to ask you outright and then we're going to crack down. Um, It still, it has that vibe. Yes, I completely agree. And we saw that. I mean, we saw that when I was working on the FACA guidance at the IRS, people asked me why we weren't including crypto in that guidance. And I said, well, this is, this is groundbreaking enough, but unfortunately there needs to be some bigger decisions about crypto being made before we can do it in FACA. But you definitely saw people picking up on it way back then and thinking this is coming. And then we're seeing the same for the common reporting standard. They're looking at what other information that could be reported. There, there are you know still loopholes in the, in the FACA reporting space mm-hmm. um, other than crypto, and we shall see. Right. Well, so understanding that you don't have a crystal ball. This time next year, do you think we'll still be having these same kind of conversations about crypto, about 1042, about 1099, or do you think any of those will have begun to resolve? I think we'll be talking a lot about 1099K towards the end of the year as people start to look at the data, start to look at their obligations, really get prepared for it. I think that is going to be you know, the focus of preparing for reporting season next year. So that that's my prediction in the 1099 space, I would say, similar to what we saw with the 1099 NEC previously. Mm-hmm. I think we're too soon for crypto. Like I said, I think we've got a, a few more years. In the 1042S space, really the complexity of 1042S is the IRS keeps on adding codes to it, exemption codes, recipient codes. 
new codes without ordering rules. When do I choose one code over the other? Oh, gosh, uh-huh. And then they're using data analytics to say, you didn't do this correctly, or this, these, this income code and this pay code doesn't make sense from a logic perspective. But I, that's splitting hairs to me. I could argue that that, that does make sense. Um, so I think to the extent they want to enforce the rules in that way, they've got to put out some better guidance on the ordering rules and how they work. Um, when you're supposed to choose a particular exemption code over another. But I do think we've seen a lot of 1042S IRS exams. So I do think that's going to continue to be an area of focus and something that we get a lot of questions on. In the FACA space and in the CRS reporting space, what we've seen for a lot of years is, quite frankly, reporting with bad data. There's just so much reporting to do, so much information to sit through that banks have been and other financial institutions have been just getting by Mm -hmm. and doing their best to do the reporting. And the IRS and others are kind of saying, this isn't good enough anymore. This data we can tell is not correct and you need to start doing it better or we're going to start enforcing these rules. And they're asking a lot of questions and some of them are really good questions that are making institutions have to relook at their process. And I think that I do think a lot of financial institutions and others spend a lot of money having to comply with these rules. And unfortunately, I think they're going to have to spend a little bit more because the IRS is really and the and these other governments are really focused on data quality. Right. And that's probably also why IRS is, well, why Congress believes IRS is interested in, uh, in being in bank accounts. Obviously, that didn't didn't make it through Congress, but the idea that banks would be giving more information about everyday accounts to the IRS, I guess, for for data matching reasons. That's a good point. And there's inflow and that inflow and outflow reporting with potentially no such thing as exempt recipients was really going to blow 1099 reporting out of the water. I mean, there were going to be <laughs> a flurry yes. <laughs> of, of reporting that was going to happen. but. Those ideas resurface over time. So mm-hmm. I do think we will see that that come through again. Oh, I think in a different Congress. Absolutely. I agree. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Before you go, um, I have a couple of questions. We do a little get to know you at the end, just so people can know a little bit more about you outside of the tax world. Um, so my first question for you is, if you could have dinner with one person who's alive today, who would it be? Oh, one person that's alive. That's a tough one. I thought you were going to ask me dead or alive, which I was ready. Oh, who, who, would, who would be then dead or alive? Oh, I would love to have dinner with Eleanor Roosevelt. I oh, have cool. admired her since I was a young child and I continue to today. And I often think of her when I'm in sticky situations where I'm not feeling as confident in myself. I always think of what she said, which is no one can make you feel inferior except for yourself. And I always tell myself that and give myself a little pep talk before I go into um, anything where where my nerves are a little bit shaken. My dad once gave me a card that had that quote on it. And I used to, um, I went to a a residential high school and I used to always have it on my door so that I could take a peek at it and remember it. So I love that quote too. So what's your favorite tax code section or reg? Well, I would uh, definitely the FACA regulations. I mean, that was my baby. I was had both of my children while I was writing those regulations. And so I call it my first baby. Gotcha. And then tax Twitter would want to know pancakes or waffles. I'm going to go with none. 
<gasps> I'm an egg person. That's the first time we've had someone say none. Yeah, I don't weird. like syrup. I just don't like, no, I'm a nun. I'm wow. an egg. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> so if, um, if my listeners wanted to find you either on social media or on the web and you wanted to be found, where would you send them? Sure. So you can definitely find me on LinkedIn, Tara Ferris. And then we at EY have a dedicated webpage to U.S. information reporting and what we call customer tax operations, which talks about how we can help you comply with a lot of these difficult rules from an operational standpoint. Awesome. And I'll be sure to put those links in the show notes so that folks can find them. Again, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.